Why don't you join me as we pray? Let's ask God to bless us, and then we'll pursue the study. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's an encouragement to my heart to see so many men and women here yet again on a Wednesday night to study how your word compares and contrasts with deceptions that so many around this world believe. And so I pray you'd help me to be clear, help me to be fair. And I'm asking, Lord, that what I teach tonight would edify these brothers and sisters. It would strengthen their faith and stir them to share the hope they have with those who are following a false, empty hope. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Islam. What comes to your mind when you hear Islam? Perhaps it's events. Maybe you can't help, but when you hear the word Islam, you just can't help but think about some of those admittedly difficult world events. You may go back to 1979, that infamous Iranian uh, revolution and the hostage crisis that spilled over into 1980s. It's, in fact, it ended Jimmy Carter's presidency, and I believe it ended like on the hour Ronald Reagan became the president. Maybe you go there, or the Beirut bombings, or the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, of course, who amongst us doesn't somehow, some way, draw our minds back to the most infamous of all attacks, the September 11th, 2001 attacks, and the successive wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and beyond. Maybe you go to events, or maybe you instantly, when you hear the word Islam, your, your mind goes to names. Surely most of you in this room are familiar with the name most associated with Islam, Muhammad. Or maybe you're less historically inclined, you're more pop cultural inclined, and you go to Muhammad Ali. Or perhaps the most infamous Muslim worldwide, Osama bin Laden. Your name, your mind just goes with these names. It goes with these events. Or maybe even think of some cultural things like the hijab, that covering that women often wear. Or maybe an Arabic turban. Or you think of all these prayers, the little minarets that you see on the corner of mosques and the, the calls. It just, it seems utterly foreign. And if that's you, you're in good company. I, I too share those natural associations. So my, my point tonight is I want to help drive away any caricature any of us might have about Islam. It's always helpful to know what's the truth so that you can fairly and faithfully bring the gospel to them where they are. So tonight, my intent is to help us understand Islam as best we know how, and we're going to do so by pursuing five questions. And you see those in your notes. I hope you'll follow along with me. We're going to first interrogate together, well, where did this come from? Where did Islam come from? What is its history? I'll briefly trace that tonight from the outset. Then we need to figure out, well, what's their authority? What's the Bible, the scripture, the the authoritative text they look at? We'll, of course, address that as well. A third question we'll look at is, what exactly do they believe? We'll highlight those key core distinctive beliefs undergirding the faith known as Islam And then we'll actually just look at general distinctives in general. You know, like, what do they practice? How does the Islamic faith get practiced over against Christianity? We'll address some of those distinctives, and then we'll bring it home with probably the most critical question, and that's, what are the differences? And you'll probably have that question answered before we get there, but we'll put a finer point on it, we'll put an exclamation point on it, and we'll draw out together, how does the Christian gospel differ from the message 
of Islam. So let's begin where I said we'd begin with the big question, where did it come from? And what's really interesting that might shock a great many of you is the story of Islam begins in the story of the Christian church. Did you know there's a parallel? Christianity, post-Christ, was spreading all over the known Roman world. The Apostle Paul began this great mission, bringing the gospel to all corners of the Roman Empire. And upon his death and the death of the apostles and the death of those who followed the apostles, the gospel was going forth so powerfully, so unstoppably, that eventually one of the famed Roman emperors, Constantine himself, became a Christian. He made it the legal religion of the empire. Indeed, he outlawed anything other than Christianity. It seemed that Christianity could not be stopped. It was surging north into North Europe. It was surging south into Northern Africa. It was surging east all the way uh, into the Mesopotamia region, Israel. Surging west all the way over to England, to Spain. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the 500s, 6th century A.D., there was a counter-insurgent force that began to slow the spread of Christianity. It was an odd bunch, a different bunch, a group of people that was unlike most of the citizens of the Roman Empire. These were Arabic peoples coming from the region of Arabia. And with them was not only a distinct culture, an Arabic culture, and that comes with it a bunch of visual things that were different than the average Roman, but there were some core convictional beliefs that were different. And it was these clear cultural convictional beliefs that began to butt heads with the Christianized Roman Empire. Who were these people? What did they believe? They became known as the Muslims, Arabic Muslims. What did they believe? Theirs was a faith known as Islam. Where did this come from? What is Islam and how did it begin? What's wild about Islam is its roots begin in the year 570 AD. You'll see that on your notes. And it begins in a little village, a, a tribe of people called the Karash tribe. This tribe was a Bedouin people. In fact, all the people of Arabia were Bedouins. Do you know what I mean when I say a Bedouin people? They were those nomads that kind of just live off the land. They don't really have cities. They just move about following agriculture. They often in Arabia would live almost exclusively off camel's milk. That was their main source of nutrients. This is the type of people we're describing. One such tribe, the Karash tribe, hailed from a city in the Arabic peninsula called Mecca, and I trust most of you are already familiar with the word, the name, the place, Mecca. There was a tribe, and in this tribe was born a young man to two parents who died in this man's young age. In fact, by age six, he was orphaned. He went to his grandfather. His grandfather died when he was roughly eight years of age, so he was sent off to an uncle, and this uncle took him all around the known Arabic world, in fact, up into that part of the Roman Empire. This young man, this young boy, was exposed to three different groups of people. He was exposed to Christians, lots of Christian tribe people. He was exposed to Jews, 
Lots of Jews in the diaspora or the spreading out of the Jewish people all over the empire. He ran into all these pockets of Judaism, all these pockets of Christianity. Thirdly, he ran into all these pockets of paganism. People that just believed whatever they wanted and worshipped, you know, rocks and trees and the sand and the sky. And here's where it gets odd. Here's where it gets traditional. And by that I mean this is the story passed down through the ages. We as Christians would not agree with these stories. But where the story begins with this young man is that this particular boy one day evidently was prophesied over by a Christian monk, which shocked me. A Christian monk came to this young Arabic boy and said, I foresee you to be a prophet of God. And evidently from that day forward, this young man had a prophet complex. You might dare say a Messiah complex. He began to think of himself as something other. It attests through a bunch of records that he became very spiritually attuned. He started to go into the mountains and pray often. He would have these odd devotional times with God. Some sources even attest that he would try to pray to the God of Christianity, the God of Judaism. He would explore some of the pagan things. He was trying to figure out what he believed, but he knew something. He married a woman 15 years his senior, Khadijah. She was wealthy. She employed him. They decided to get married. He instantly becomes well-resourced until one day he is in this prayerful state in a cave overlooking the city of Mecca. And in this prayerful state, he attests that he received a vision. He received something unusual. The man of whom I speak, as you probably now know, is a young man named Muhammad. And Muhammad believes that in this little cave called Hira, overlooking Mecca, an angel came to him. Do y'all know who the angel was? He attests that in that cave, the angel Gabriel came to him. Jibril, as they described him. The one who announced the coming of our Christ. Gabriel. Gabriel? He believed Gabriel had a message for him. He believed that Gabriel spoke to him in this cave, that he was going to become a prophet of God. And Gabriel commanded Muhammad in that moment to recite, recite, recite. He kept repeating, repeat this after me, recite this after me. Do you know what the word is in Arabic for recite? Quran. Quran. Does everybody in this room know what the word Quran refers to generally? It is the collection of all the things Muhammad was told by Gabriel to recite. The Quran is the great holy book, so to speak, of Islam, which we'll come back to in a moment. So Muhammad receives this alleged vision from Gabriel. He recites all that Gabriel tells him to, but then he goes home and he's confused because, I mean, imagine, am I really this? Like, did that just happen? Was that a dream? But his wife and his cousins affirmed him. 
They said, no, you must be a prophet of God. So for three years, he basically made disciples, so to speak, amongst his immediate family. But after three years, he decided to go public. In the year 613 AD, he begins to go public in the city of Mecca. But there's a problem. Mecca is not filled with people that believe like Muhammad. Mecca is filled with people who have a business. These people get a lot of money from selling idols to other people. That's their means of a living. Polytheism, this pagan idolatry is rampant in Mecca. And do you think the average businessman was going to be happy to hear that there's this young kid who just came into town and said there is no God, all those gods are fake, there is only one God and his name is Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet? You think the town liked that? They hated it. So they drove him out of town. The people, the citizens of Mecca, the tribes ended up turning on him. They hated his message. They hated that Muhammad came into Mecca and said this, you must submit. Write that word down, submit. The word submit is another word in Arabic for Islam. Islam means submission. One who submits to Allah is a Muslim. Nobody liked that message. They drove this submitter, so to speak, out of town. And so off Muhammad goes. And while he is kicked out of town, another crazy, fantastical thing allegedly occurs. Evidently, Muhammad believes that he had what is known today by Muslims as a night journey. Evidently, at this time, Muhammad was transported. I don't know if this was like Star Wars or what, but he was transported to Jerusalem where upon the, the Temple Mount, where today you would find the Dome of the Rock, where they had a, a mosque called the Al-Aqba Mosque, he believed that there he spoke and prayed with Abraham. There he spoke and prayed with Moses. There he spoke and prayed with Jesus? Did you all know that Jesus intertwines in odd ways with the history of Islam? We'll clear it up in a moment. He claims to have encountered Jesus on this mountaintop. And then it gets better. He wasn't only teleported to that hillside in Jerusalem. It says he ascended up to heaven. And there in the courts of heaven, he was instructed by God himself. God, by the way, in this Arabic language is Allah, which literally means the God. Allah means the God. He comes up to the God, Allah, who teaches him that he must pray five times a day. And that becomes a key core distinctive of Islam, which we'll come back to in just a moment. Thus concludes his famed night journey where he sees Jesus and Moses and Abraham. He sees Allah himself. He receives the instruction to give five prayers and he comes back down to earth. And guess what he does? He had fled to a little town called Medina. Some of you may even be familiar with the name Medina. It's still a pretty well-known town to this day in Saudi Arabia. He decides he's going to come back to uh, 
Mecca. He wants to come and take Mecca back for himself. So he comes back with a bunch of followers. All these people that had become really rich and powerful in the city of Medina follow him. It says there's roughly 10,000 that go with him. And he ends up coming back to Mecca And as you can imagine, he wins. He ends up defeating the town of Mecca in this bloodless conquest. And he instructs everybody in Mecca that they must do this one thing. There was a structure in Mecca. An odd building that is purportedly as old as the Garden of Eden. You know this structure, I suspect. It is perhaps the most well-recognized visual of Islam to this day. For in Mecca, and you can find it to this very day, there is a small structure, a box. I believe it's like 50 feet by 35 feet by 35 feet. It's a box. You see it right here in the black. This little box is covered with black silk cloth. All the gold you see on the exterior of this box is Quranic verses inscribed on it. This little box has in its corner, you can't see it in this picture, but in the corner of one of the walls is a black stone. It was originally white, they say, and it fell from heaven showing uh, Adam and uh, Eve where to build a temple, where to worship God, where to put an altar. And they have put this stone at the corner, and it's become black, evidently, over the years from everybody touching it. And Muslims throughout the world go to this little box, and they walk around it and try to touch it. And after centuries of millions of people touching it, it's evidently turned black. Does anybody know the name of this little box? It's called the Kaaba. You may hear some say Kaaba, but Kaaba will do. This box becomes the central focal point of the Islamic faith. He commands all of the people to come and worship at this box, but he has to clean it up first because guess what had happened to the Kaaba? Inside of it, evidently, was filled with tons of idols. He comes and he cleans house, so to speak, getting rid of all these Meccan gods inside of it and says, circle this box, this uh, place of worship, this temple, so to speak, seven times. Thus began a pilgrimage that persists to this very day. We're going to come back in a moment to what this pilgrimage is. But to this day, every Muslim that is financially and physically able will at one point in their life travel to Saudi Arabia, to the city of Mecca, and go into that great throng of humanity that you can see around this box and circumnavigate it seven times, a significant act of worship, so to speak, of the God Allah. Now, Muhammad doesn't live a terribly long life. He ends up dying in the year 632 A.D. Around the time of his death, he had, I don't know, roughly 40 to 50,000 people that were following him. Tribes of followers began to virtually destroy Jews and Christians everywhere because a key belief in Islam was jihad, this notion that you must go and conquer other peoples by force for the sake of the name of uh, Allah. You see Islam begin to spread by force in North Africa, in Arabia, in Mesopotamia, Turkey, Persia, eventually all the way up into Europe. You see this great throng of Muslims begin to take over. But as is so often the case, once the leader, the founder dies, what tends to happen when the founder dies? There's a split. There was an argument to be had. Upon Muhammad's death, Muslims evidently around the world were debating 
who is his rightful successor? There was one group that said, there's a really able, sharp guy. He's the one who should be our leader. He is the most competent guy to lead Muslims moving forward. This man's name was Abu Bakr. And the people that believed Abu Bakr should be our new leader, they became known as the Sunni Muslims. Have any of you ever heard of Sunni Muslims? If you watch TV at all from the year 2003 to 2008, 2010, you heard about the Sunnis and the Shias on nightly news virtually every night because of the uh, tribal wars that were going on in Iraq, in the Iraq war. The Sunnis were those who believed that Abu Bakr should be their leader. But there was another group, and I gave it away, the Shias, who disagreed. They were more nepotistic. They thought that Muhammad's offspring, one of his own, should end up taking over. Muhammad had a son-in-law named Ali, and they thought that his son-in-law should be the new leader. Thus split the two major groups in Islam, the Shias and the Sunnis. Now, one thing to consider. To this day, did you know that Sunnis comprise roughly 90% of Muslims worldwide? You predominantly see them in Saudi Arabia. You'll see them in places like Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates. Only 10% of Muslims worldwide are known as Shias. But the reason we know so much about them is, guess where the Shias are? It's in the places that the United States has been. They're in places like Iran, Iraq. You are even a town, a, a country that most of you probably don't know much about, Azerbaijan. There's, there's pockets of these distinct Muslims called Shias in these groups. You even see a subset of Shias predominantly in the nation of Syria. A couple words that you probably have heard on the news. Raise your hand if you've ever heard a local newscaster talk about an, um, an imam. Anybody ever heard of somebody on the news talk about a caliph, like Caliph Sheikh Mohammed? You hear that on the news? Well, those are two different names for pastors or leaders or, you know, priests, whatever you want to call them. It's names that they call their leaders in, in Islam. The Sunnis, they call their leaders caliphs. The Shias call their leaders imams. That concludes, just in a very brief sense, the overarching history of where Islam came from. But let's get down into some more nitty-gritty now. And what exactly is it? We kind of know culturally speaking, what it is, but what do they believe? How do they practice today? Well, let's start with the foundation of their belief. What is their source of authority? What's their scripture, so to speak? And we already gave it away. What is their scripture? It's the Quran. The Quran is the recitation, those things that Muhammad recited at Gabriel's command. Let's talk about the Quran just briefly. It's central not only to their faith, but I dare say it's even more central to their culture. They believe these to be the literal words of Allah. And unlike us, who believe the Bible was written by 39 to 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, and that God inspired them, but their personalities came out in the writing, Islam, Muslims believe that the Quran literally like fell from the sky, so to speak. That this is the verbatim words of Allah. And I have heard many scholars say that it is better to compare the Quran not to the Bible, but to Christ himself, which I know is an odd thing to say, that speaks of how highly they view the Quran. It is literally the embodiment, so to speak, of Allah on earth. It is his will for mankind. 
It was received over roughly 22 years, and it really didn't become a document until about the 7th century or so, the 600s. Okay, now let's talk a little bit more about uh, what other texts might undergird Islam. In addition to the Quran, there was another text that honestly is probably as influential in Islam as the Quran, but few to none of you have ever heard of it. Anybody in this room ever heard of the Sunnah? A couple of you have. The Sunnah, unlike the Quran, is a document that basically just records the life story and the beliefs and practices of Muhammad. It just is this big old biographical compilation of things. Now, you want to see what's crazy? It doesn't just teach us how Muhammad prayed. It doesn't just teach us how Muhammad obeyed the Quran. Do you know what it teaches? It teaches how he brushed his teeth and what he used. To this day, there are certain uh, markets in the Muslim world where major branded toothpaste companies sell toothpaste with ingredients that Muhammad evidently used. You can find, you know, I don't know what they call it, like Muslim toothpaste, I don't know what it is, that you can buy special toothpaste per the Sunnah, teaching us what Muhammad himself even used. All the individual teachings in the Sunnah, all the little factoids you might learn about it, they have a word for each one of those facts. They're called hadith. You probably hear the phrase hadith if you ever interact with a Muslim, for a hadith is a key core belief of some kind. It might be the conviction on toothpaste, as inconsequential as that, or it might be a, a hadith that is as significant as, here is how Allah expects us to pray. Thus, compare, thus describes the Sunnah and the Quran. Now, let's talk about literally what do they believe. If that's their major documents, what does that actually mean in practice? What are the key things they believe? Well, I got an easy job tonight. Because in Christianity, if I was going to try to summarize the key core beliefs, I could give you in narrative form the gospel. But if I wanted to like delineate all the major doctrines, I mean, we could we spent a whole semester talking about that. There's a lot to teach. In Islam, they actually spell out key core beliefs. You can call these the six articles of faith. These are the key core things that every Muslim believes. They are the pillars that undergird the entire faith. You can see one visual representation of it. Let me just walk through these with you together. The first article is, as you might expect, the most critical, the most important, the most foundational. It is what they call the Tawheed or the oneness of God. Did you know there is a sentence that is repeated more than any other in Islam? You've probably heard it before. This sentence is so repeated that in Egypt in particular, it is said that most traditional Muslims will whisper this sentence into the ear of a newborn infant for the first thing they hear. It is recited in virtually every service. It is recited literally countless times in the home. This phrase is called the Shahada, and the Shahada says simply this, There is no God but Allah. And Muhammad is his messenger or prophet. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? It's repeated time and again in Islam. There is no God but Allah. And Muhammad is his messenger. It is the core conviction of Islam. Praying to Jesus as God would make you an infidel. For there is no God but Allah. And Muhammad 
is his messenger. Tawhid, the oneness of God. It's not all they believe, though. Oddly enough, this might shock you. You want to know what their second major belief is? If you were to take all the things Muslims believe and delineate it down to six, it's shocking to me that this would be number two. But the second thing that they regard as a core conviction is they believe in angels. <laughs> kind of odd. Angels. Angels are mentioned time and again in the Quran. Gabriel, Michael, the angel of death. There's even some guardian angels mentioned in the Bible. I mean in the Quran. There is even a Satan, Shaitan, in the Quran mentioned. Angels. Are you guys seeing the odd, weird connections between Islam and the Bible? We're going to try to untangle all this in a moment, but I want you to feel the odd similarity and let that tension sit there because it was shocking to me when I first studied and learned all the weird connections between the two. The oneness of God. The doctrine of angels. A third doctrine is the doctrine of holy books. They, this might shock many of you, did you know that the average Muslim affirms a good portion of our Old Testament? Did you know that Islam is considered an Abrahamic religion? There are three great Abrahamic religions, so-called, in the world. Three great religions that share Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and thereon. Christianity, as you well know, it is our hope. Judaism, as you might expect, they affirm the Old Testament, they just get it wrong at Jesus. And Islam. Islam similarly affirms Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They read the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we call the Torah or call the Pentateuch, those first five key books that really set the tone for the Old Testament. They affirm them. Did you know that? It's pretty wild. They affirm the Psalms of David. Is that right? wild to you? All these Psalms that are your great hope, that you pray through, that you love, that have been a balm for your soul, is it odd that the most orthodox of Muslims would say we affirm the Psalms of David? Is it shocking to you that they even look at the Gospels of Jesus as something worth looking at, but they see our version of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as corrupted. They would say, what we read has been corrupted. It's turned Jesus into somebody more than he is. They believe in Jesus. They actually see Jesus as a wonderful, holy man. They see Jesus as a great prophet of God, but not the final prophet. They see Jesus as a lesser prophet. Did you know that the average Muslim will look at the Bible... And when they see, for example, the promise that Jesus makes of a helper who will come, a paraclete is the word in the Greek, to come. Y'all remember when Jesus promises he's going to send a helper? Now, everybody in this room knows of whom he speaks, correct? Of course, we know that when Jesus promises a helper, he is promising the Holy Spirit of God. Do you know what Muslims believe? They believe the helper of which Jesus speaks is Muhammad, who is the prophet to come, who will at last fulfill fully and finally all that Jesus teed up, so to speak. He's a prophet, but he is not the great final prophet. The great final prophet in their judgment is Muhammad himself. It's odd to see all the similarities between Islam and the Old Testament. Pretty wild to look at. Now, 
there's a fourth key article that I want you to consider with me, closely related to the subject at hand. They believe in the doctrine of the prophets or the messengers. Now, here's what's pretty wild. Did you know that Islam will affirm the following men as prophets? Aaron. I'm going to do this in ABC order. I wrote it down on my notes. Aaron. Abel. Abraham. Adam. Cain. David. The disciples. Elisha. Enoch. Eve. Ezra. Goliath. (laughs) What? Isaac. Ishmael, Jacob, Jesus, John the Baptist, Jonah, Joseph, Lot, Mary, Moses, Noah, Pharaoh, Samuel, Saul, Solomon, and the list goes on. Is that not wild to consider that they would affirm them as messengers, so to speak, of God? They read Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18, which says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all I command him. And you know who they think Moses is speaking of in Deuteronomy 18, 18? Yet again, Muhammad, the great final prophet to come. The fifth key article of faith. This one might surprise you, considering they reject the resurrection of Jesus Nevertheless, they affirm in the day of resurrection and judgment. They believe resurrection to be a key core hope that is coming one day. One day we will all face judgment. Signs of the end are going to come. Trumpets are going to blow. Judgment's going to come. But everybody's going to cross over this bridge that goes over hell. And those who make it over the bridge will enter into paradise. And those who don't will fall into the great fiery abyss of hell. The day of resurrection and judgment. Sixth and finally, the final core key doctrinal belief, the sixth article of faith, predestination. It is a way to describe their view of the total sovereignty of Allah. He knows everything and has determined everything. Let's move now to how does this work itself out in practice? Because this is heady, admittedly. We just kind of did a crash course on their systematic theology, so to speak. But let's consider now something a little bit more practical. This might interest you as you can make correlations with your own experience with Islam. What are their distinctives? How do they practice their faith? Well, again, they did their work for me. It's easy for me to summarize it tonight because they actually have, as a part of their religious doctrine, they have what they call the five pillars of Islam. These five pillars are the five things that basically distinguish every Muslim worldwide. The first pillar, as you might expect, is that great confession of faith, the shahada. You must confess with your mouth, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger or his prophet. They also recite this virtually five times a day during their call to prayer. As I mentioned, it's often recited in the ears of newborns. It's a personal confession, so to speak. It would be like us repenting and believing. You must confess with your mouth that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. And only then can you become a Muslim, a member of the great Ummah or the worldwide body of Muslims in Islam. That's the first pillar. The second pillar, as I've alluded to now on a couple of occasions, is what they describe as the five daily prayers. Remember how Muhammad was taught this purportedly in his great night journey when he first was teleported to Jerusalem and then he teleported up to heaven and in heaven before Allah, Allah told him, 
that he must give these five prayers daily. It became a core distinctive of the faith. Generally speaking, every Muslim does five prayers at roughly these five times of the day. Typically before sunrise, around noon, in the afternoon, around sunset, and right before bed at night. Those are the five daily prayers. Often involved with those prayers are daily washings of hands. Often they'll wash their hands, their forearms, sometimes their feet and ankles, even their mouth, nose, and head. I was in the uh, Istanbul airport a month ago, and I didn't understand this at first. I went into, by the way, it's the nicest airport I've ever been to in the world. It, the, you know what the worst airports were? The U.S. airports. All the other airports I went to were stunning, and there was none nicer than the Istanbul. And you go in this beautiful bathroom, really nice sink in the men's room, and I noticed this sign on the mirror. And the sign says, these basins are not for salat. Salat is the five daily prayers and the washings, the ceremonial or ritual washings. They basically said, don't put this water in your mouth. It might make you sick, is essentially what the airport was saying, because it is so culturally common for you to use any water source you can to richly cleanse yourself for this washing. Have any of you ever noticed the prayer mats that are often involved with these prayers? Perhaps you may have a coworker that has been afforded a privilege, uh, perhaps in your corporation, to practice their daily prayers in a corner of their office or maybe in a closet or somewhere out of sight, and there's usually a prayer mat involved. This is part and parcel of these five daily prayers that are so central. Have any of you ever been to an Islamic country or a country that has a predominantly noticeable mosque? Have you all ever heard the five daily calls to prayer that proceed from a mosque or a minaret? You'll hear these weird little sounds coming out, and you notice like all the society stops for a minute. Because in most highly Islamic communities, they will actually put it on the loudspeaker for all the community to know. Because remember, Islam is as cultural as it is convictional. Christianity is very convictional, and it is hardly cultural anymore. It was about 30 years ago. It's not anymore. In Muslim countries, it's the culture. And you see these prayers, hear these prayers, I should say, bellow out, echo out through the community. Let's look at the third pillar of Islam. I bet you all know this word. Any of you ever heard of Ramadan? It is in our pop culture today. Most are familiar with Ramadan, and in particular, they fast during Ramadan. Let's talk about what Ramadan means and why they do it. Ramadan derives from basically an Arabic word that basically means scorching heat, and the thought behind Ramadan is that it is burning sin away. Okay, now let's talk about what's going on then, if they think this is a season of burning sin away. In the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, they will practice this. They will fast from sunup to sundown, dawn to dusk. They will abstain from food, substances, even intimate relations. They will abstain from anything. But at sundown, they get to enjoy anything that they have fasted from. And that breaking of the fast at night is typically associated with a celebration of some kind. The celebrations become acute. They become particularly noteworthy in the final 10 days of Ramadan. And it has become a part of the culture of Islam that somehow, way, purifies you and prepares you to be more uh, acceptable, so to speak, before Allah. The third pillar of Islam, Ramadan. Let's discuss the fourth pillar. 
almsgiving. I don't think this requires much discussion. We have a close parallel with tithes and offerings in our Christian uh, convictions, but they believe that at least 2.5% of your wages should be given throughout the year for the sake of others. Fifth and finally, I alluded to this earlier. This is a distinctive that we have no parallel to. They believe in what's called the pilgrimage to Mecca or the Hajj. And the Hajj is this obligation that every Muslim has, if they're financially and physically able, to leave wherever they live and go on a pilgrimage to the Saudi Arabian city called Mecca, where, as I described earlier, they will circumnavigate the Kaaba, the Kaaba, and they will have this great moment, so to speak, of worship. Therein lies the five core pillars of Islam. So let's land this plane tonight by just drawing out together just a few key core differences between the two. And may this serve as something that strengthens your faith and stirs your soul to take what you may have gleaned from this rapid study of Islam and apply it to any Muslims that God brings into your path. Just a few things to note. On the one hand, we must admit together that theirs and ours is a different God. Now, be careful here, because you're going to encounter some people that present themselves as evangelical Christians. They would go to a church like a Hickory Grove, Bible-believing, who will try to suggest that Allah and Yahweh are the same God, that it is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph, the God of David, Saul, Solomon, the God of all the prophets of the Old Testament, Daniel and Hosea and Joel and Amos. It's the God of Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. How can this not be the same God? And my friends, why must we conclude that there is no way, no chance that the God of Islam is the God of Christianity? Have you forgotten the great call of Christ to us in the book of John that no man comes to the Father but through me. No man comes to God except through Christ. You don't have Christ. You don't have Yahweh. You cannot know God apart from the person and work of Christ. If Christ is not presented in all of his resplendent glory, you have missed his Father. So we must therefore conclude that the God of Islam is not the God of Christianity that just kind of got hairy around the time of Jesus. These are two different gods. Allah is as much the one true God as Oprah's God is the one true God. This is not the God of the Bible. We also must therefore conclude that there really is a, a different Christ involved here, and we've pretty much established this. But remember, Jesus was more than a great prophet. He was more than a wonder worker. He was more than an ethical paragon. And you, you realize if you go to any public university today, most philosophers in public universities will admit, maybe not out loud, but they will admit in their classroom that it is hard to beat Jesus's morality. They just are astonished by the ethics of this man. Most liberal Christianity today is nothing more than a group of people that like Jesus's ethics. They don't believe he's God, but man, he was one good dude. Jesus is more than an ethical man. He is more than a prophet. He is the God-man. 
He was born of a virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life. He performed mighty miracles and he was God himself. He died on a sinner's cross, but he did not stay dead and buried. He was mightily and triumphantly resurrected from the dead. He is, in other words, utterly other than the Jesus portrayed by the religion of Islam. It is a different God. It is a different Christ. My friends, it's a different Old Testament. They may try to suggest that there's a shared Old Testament, but it's just not true. They may believe several key core things that we believe the Old Testament believes. They may agree in monotheism. There is one God. They may believe in creationism, that there is a creator that made everything. We're not just the process of evolutionary forces. They may believe in judgment, that there is one who will judge the world. They're, they're not, in other words, these uh, you know, universalists that just believe no judgment's coming. They, they do share that. They may believe that God calls us to obey him like we do. They may share with us the core conviction that God has truth and anything that disagrees with that truth is falsehood. It's error. They may share with us the conviction that we must be chased before a holy God. We must submit to God's will. They even may agree with the general historical arc of the Old Testament, but it is not the same Old Testament because the God that that Old Testament portrays is an altogether different God from the God of Islam. They, in fact, look at the Old Testament as revealing God's will, but not God himself. They believe it merely as a record of things he likes and doesn't like, does and doesn't do, but that you don't behold God in it. Now, why would they believe that? Because we know, this side of Calvary, that upon every page of the Old Testament is sprinkled the blood of the Lamb. You can't turn a page without bloody fingerprints all over it. There is a trail of blood, a scarlet thread. The Bible is, in other words, from every page, Genesis to maps, it is one great story of him whom Muslims miss, Jesus Christ our Lord. Of course they read the Old Testament and they don't see it as revealing God because it reveals to us Jesus as God. They see it as just an odd historical record of the will of Allah. May I conclude with one final point? We've noted the differences between the God, between the Christ, between the Old Testament. We therefore must conclude that their gospel and ours is certainly a different gospel. For in short, in summary, the hope of Muslims is that if you submit to the will of Allah sufficiently, you will spend eternity with Him. Let me illustrate this finally with an anecdote from my college days. I went to a college in northwest Arkansas, private Christian school that was 20 minutes away from the University of Arkansas. One day I was invited to go to a mosque. As a pastor of a, of a church there in town, I got to go to this mosque and interact with the imam. So I walked to the mosque. And as I'm there, I see a young man who's sweating from head to toe. He's clearly a college student walking into the mosque. So I struck up conversation with him. And I asked him why he walked in the crazy summer heat in northwest Arkansas all the way from his college dorm to the mosque when he had a bike or a car or there was a, a school bus that would have taken him there. And his response to me was, Allah will reward me for every step I take from my room 
to the mosque. Thus struck me an illustration that I've never lost, that there is a core convictional belief among Muslims that if you do these good things, including your very steps to church, so to speak, that these will commend you before Allah. And how does that differentiate itself from our great hope and faith? Do I even need to repeat it? Our pastor mentions it time and again. Every Sunday a sermon doesn't go by without this clear clarion call to remember that there is not one step you could ever take to commend yourself before the holiness of God. That you could spend a lifetime honoring Him and your great heap of righteousness would be as a filthy rag before the resplendent glory of His holiness. Which is why there is coming a day where all of us will fall upon our face. We will be laid low before His holiness. And the glory of that moment, what makes the gospel good news, is in that moment when we are prostrate on our face before Him, He will take us. And as Jude tells us in Jude 24 and 25, He will make us stand before the presence of God's glory. He will do it, not you, not I. He will make us stand blameless before the presence of God's glory with great joy, which is why we will spend the rest of eternity singing the 25th verse of the book of Jude. We will respond now to Jesus who is able to keep me from stumbling and to make me stand before his presence blameless and with great joy. It is to this God, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus our Lord, belongs all glory, honor, wisdom, and majesty before all time, now and forever. And we will all with one accord claim, Amen. 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 Ours is a God of grace. So let's go from this place and bring the hope we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Muslims who are woefully lost but have so many hints of the hope we have. Let's bring some light, some clarity, some definition so that they can taste and see the grace of the only God who can only be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let us pray and then we'll call it a day. Father in heaven, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. Go with us now and let us be found faithful. Would you fill our minds with the gospel? Fill our mouths with it. Whatever opportunity we have this week to testify of the hope we have within us, may we be found obedient and faithful to do just that. For those Muslim individuals whom we know, I pray, Lord, that you would provide us divinely appointed opportunities to interact and to testify that there is a gospel that is so infinitely greater than the one they're clinging to. Open their eyes and ours to see it anew, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.